You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 21. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. We have a very special episode of the show for you today. Instead of just one expert interview, we have a whole series of interviews with some of the most prominent wildlife and conservation-oriented filmmakers working today. I was able to gather all of these interviews while attending the 38th Annual International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana this past week. Those of you who've been keeping up with our social media updates know that we had an Eyes on Conservation film screening at this year's festival. Our film about the greater sage-grouse was a part of IWFF this year, and we had a great screening of the film. It was paired with the excellent PBS program Earth, A New Wild. In addition to screening our film at the festival, I was gathering short interviews with as many attending filmmakers as possible. This episode is the result of these efforts. While I was not able to get interviews with every single attending filmmaker... I did end up having some pretty interesting conversations with some of the very best independent filmmakers in attendance. I've organized these interviews into a few different categories. First, we have short films. I have five interviews with filmmakers who produced short documentaries that were at the festival. These are particularly interesting to me since this is in line with the producing work that I do for Eyes on Conservation, and four of these five films are actually available to watch online. So be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where we'll embed the full versions of all of these short films. You can find the show notes at wildlensinc.org eoc21. Now let's jump into our first series of interviews. Um, my name is Emily Fraser, and I directed Consider the Ant, which is a short, um, sort of experimental, personal essay film looking at environmental ethics, um, sort of my personal responsibility versus collective responsibility, and using ants as a metaphor for humans. What's the most interesting thing that you learned through the process of producing this film? Um, well, it was definitely a personal journey. Um, I was looking at a lot of kind of existential questions that I've been struggling with in my own life. And I think the takeaway for me was that I still have more questions than answers. And this is something I'm going to spend the rest of my life uh, working on through filmmaking and through environmental work that I am doing and that I care about. Um, but also... Something that I learned uh, is this mantra that we've been hearing for so long about um, personal responsibility in environmental matters, you know, doing your part and recycling and conserving water and all of those things that's not enough and we really need sort of a cultural revolution and we need much more radical change and um, yeah, we need our political leaders and our spiritual leaders and everyone to step up and admit that we can't solve the problems by doing the things that we've been telling ourselves we need to do. We need something bigger. What was your greatest challenge in putting this film together? 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> so many challenges. Um, first of all, making a personal film is a really difficult process. You kind of end up hating yourself along the way. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to other filmmakers. Um, and then also, it, it was it's not a traditional story. I mean, there wasn't a traditional story arc there. So I really struggled with um, how to approach these questions in an interesting way and tie it all together. And I think that's actually a struggle that a lot of environmental filmmakers have in general because the stories that we need to tell, the stories that most need to be told, don't necessarily have obvious, compelling characters and story arcs that people want to hear. Um, So it's a real creative challenge. Yeah, for sure. So where can people go to see your film? Um, You can check it out on my website, which is emilyelizabethfilms.com. My name is Daniel Goetz. I'm from Germany. Um, I have a short film running here at the International Wildlife Film Festival, which is called Salmo, uh, which is the European lake trout. And I shot the entire spawning sequence and the behaviors of this particular fish in the Swiss Alps. And uh, it turned out to be 12 nice, nice minutes for every fish and nature lover. You were telling me about some of the interesting uh, research-based work that, that you do with fish as well. Yeah. I, do, I mean, my, my work is um, all kinds of photo and film-related work when it comes to, let's say, rare fish or um, be it oceanic or riverine. And um, I did a lot of research work on the European lake trout. What I did last year over the course of three and a half months, um, I shot the fish underwater with GoPro cameras. Um, I took three and a half million stills, basically, or frames. Um, and I ID'd all the fish by using um, their color patches, injuries, whatever. And so I ID'd. From three and a half million stills images, I ID'd a little over 100 unique fish. Um, and uh, so I also have a scientific background. It was a very kind of, yeah, very interesting work. Uh, it's, I reckon, a new field of work that is coming up with, yeah, having cheap cameras like the GoPro, uh, where you can create tons of data, can actually put cameras very easily in a river, um, so, yeah, I'll do, I do all kinds of work. I do hard projects, but I also do scientific work. Um, I do commission work for uh, large TV channels like Animal Planet. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum of work, but it's always fish, and it's always underwater. Nice, nice. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration for this film of yours that's screening here at the festival. Um, I can't say there is... Well, the inspiration is... First of all, I love fish, and I kind of like it. I, it's, it's, it sounds kind of like a little cheesy when I say I fell in love with a fish. First of all, it's a beautiful fish. They're beautiful animals, and they are basically facing extinction in Switzerland. They are highly endangered in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. They're stunningly beautiful, and it's, it's oddly... It's kind of like an iconic fish in in Switzerland, but on the other side, very few people actually know about the fish. And with my film, I can really kind of like 
open the eyes and say, wow, look, it's actually where you live. Look how the fish migrate upstream into the Alps and what efforts uh, this fish undertakes to reproduce. So the inspiration comes from, from the beauty, the, the, the tenacity of the fish, the migration they undergo, um, and the environment in which they live in, which is beautiful, the Alps, and, and where they migrate up to is just a, it's, it's a stunning background. It's a, it's a filmmaker's dream, actually. So what, what kind of reaction? I, I assume you, have you, you've been screening the film in, in Germany and in Switzerland and these areas where the fish is. Have the people in those areas seen it yet? No. It's, uh, I had the world premiere here at IWFF. Um, I screened it privately, and um, for people who love fish, uh, they're really stunned by the images. And uh, I go very much into detail how the fish behave underwater. Um, I revealed some behaviors that had not been described in scientific papers before. So it's kind of like a little bit like jaw-dropping to, to see what complex behaviors this seemingly well, I'd say, well, fish seem stupid, but they're not. They're intelligent. And um, I reckon we do underestimate the intelligence of trout or fish in general. And that was kind of like, wow, that was a little bit shocking for most people, but still, uh, yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Neat. So what were, some of, uh, what, what were some of the challenges that you faced while you were uh, working on this project? Um, the... The, I mean, there were many huge challenges. Challenge number one was the landscape is is very harsh. Uh, we shot the the fish in in strong alpine creeks that have a very strong flow, and uh, we had to walk down gorges with all the film equipment. That was a huge challenge. Another challenge are the fish. Um, you have very few fish actually migrating upstream. It's not like a salmon migration where you have hundreds of fish or thousands. You just have very few individuals that go upstream and look for a spawning site. So we had to walk miles to actually find a couple that it's that might spawn. So that was very difficult too. And then to make it even worse, uh, the fish spawn in early winter, usually during November, early December. And it's very cold in Switzerland. It's usually around freezing. The snow starts filming underwater in a steep gorge. Very few fish only. Um, and it's cold. It's tricky. It's not easy. <laughs> but it's very rewarding. Yeah, but you, you were able to capture this, right? And you're able to capture behavior that nobody else had observed before. Exactly. Um, that was very rewarding. And, um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's this classic filmmaker's process you dive into a project there's so much frustration but actually you learn so much from the frustration and the errors and and then suddenly on one day two days or three days it actually all comes together and that is of course very rewarding and I mean we had many many days where we had not even a single fish in front of the lens actually time was running out uh, but I had yeah, two days where it kind of like almost, it, 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 I can say, nearly perfectly came together. For a filmmaker, it never is perfect. You're always close to perfect. We never nail it perfectly, but I was happy. So, yeah. 
neat, neat. So uh, how can folks see your film? Where, where can folks go to learn more about it? Yeah, um, I, I did submit the film to several film festivals, and, and I want to have it screened in, at, film, at various wildlife, nature, conservation-minded film festival first. I will try to sell it, of course. It's a very niche film, um, but my first step is to go into selected film festivals like IWFF. Yeah. Nice. So, I, I mean, is, is, is there a website for the film where folks can go to see, you know, uh, as um, some of these uh, screenings, uh, as you start to find out where it's going to start screening? Yeah, I have a personal website. Um, and I have all the info on the website. I have links. I have images. I have all the screening dates. I have a blog, too, which is embedded in my site. So you can get all the info on there um, about the film and the screening dates. Great. What's the website? The website is my name, which is danielgertz.com. Maybe you can put it this on your website. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it on the website for cool. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the website. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for talking about your film. Thank you very much, Matthew. I'm Annie White, and I'm a science and natural history filmmaker. Um, before I did that, I started out doing biology and animal behavior and studied wolves for a long time. Um, so the film that I'm here at IWFF with is called A Wolf's Place, and it's kind of one of my dream films that I always wanted to make about the wolves in Yellowstone and the effect they've had on the ecosystem there since they've been reintroduced, and now what's happening to them since the hunting seasons have been opened and they're they're actively being hunted again. What's the most interesting thing that you learned through the process of producing this film that maybe you didn't know going into it? Um, I think the most interesting thing that I learned and I came across while doing this was the challenge of finding a really good character to carry a theoretical story that I wanted to tell. You know, I wanted to get into the real science of the trophic cascade, which is how, you know, the upper level predators can change an ecosystem below them. Um, but coming into the whole film with just this scientific idea and wanting to explain that, it's really hard to get people to engage with the story and to care about the outcome of it unless you have this amazing character that'll get them emotionally connected to it. Um, so I ended up finding mine in um, this wolf that has actually been dead for 20 years. Um, so that was another big part of the story and a big part of the challenge was trying to figure out how to tell the story of this wolf who isn't around anymore. Um, but yeah, the most probably the most important thing I learned was that you can't just come in with this big idea um, and get make a an engaging film you have to have that character that somebody's going to be able to identify with and it, it sounds like that's probably one of your biggest challenges as well right was how to take this character which is a non-human character that is no longer living and how to bring it to life how did you uh, how did you accomplish that um, my original plan was to do all the pieces about that wolf in animation. Um, and in the end, that would have taken me like 50 years to do. <laughs> um, so I got really lucky and then I was able to take all the the wolf footage that I filmed in Yellowstone while I was there and kind of take different pieces and piece together the story of that particular wolf. 
Um, it was it was definitely a big challenge, but I'd say the biggest challenge I had was that originally the film wasn't even going to include the hunting aspect. It was just going to be about the science. Um, but about two weeks before I went to start shooting, um, you know, filming for the the movie was when the hunting seasons opened and the the wolves that I was planning to film left the park they got killed and all of a sudden I was left without any wolves to film um, so I spent ended up spending a month living in Yellowstone going out every day and for the first three weeks I didn't see a single wolf um, the film almost changed you know I almost had to change the title to be the invisible wolf um, and so this this huge, you know, aspect of the film really just came out of the realities of what happened while I was in the field. And I think it's a stronger film for it, um, but it was definitely not part of the plan from the very beginning. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, so where can people go to, to watch your film? So my film is available online um, at this um, webcast series called Life on Terra. Um, so if you just go to lifeonterra.com, it's called the Wolf's Place, and um, yeah, it's available there for free, and I hope everybody gets to see it. <laughs> awesome, fantastic, thanks. Yeah. Um, my name is Madison McClintock, and I am a co-founder and producer of Nest Boss Collective, and also a recent graduate of the Master's in Science Natural History Filmmaking um, as of last week, <laughs> which is great. Um, my film, Fungophilia Rising, um, I finished last year, 2014, and it's a film um, really, really painting a picture, um, a little window into the world of mushrooms and the people that admire them, and um, uh, of people in the American West, so it covers people from Montana, uh, Washington, Oregon, and California. Awesome. So what, where, where did the inspiration for this story come from? Well, actually, um, I grew up in the Bay Area, and when I was young, I was forced to go to the museum one day and with my family, and um, there was a fungus fair going on, and you know that you have booths and cooking classes, and they're teaching about medicinal mushrooms and how to dye clothes with mushrooms. And I, I at the age of 14, was pretty impressed by how many applications, how many things um, mushrooms can be applied to besides eating. Um, so I, I knew when I got into film a few years ago, um, three years ago, that uh, it was a film I wanted, a story I wanted to tell. There's, it's a very niche culture. People that are um, really, really into mushrooms and fungi are also inherently very eccentric, so they make very good characters, um, and they're just wonderful people. So um, I really just wanted to share that with more of a general public, and um, there's a lot of fascinating ways that mushrooms can be applied for conservation and restoring ecosystems. So um, kind of pairing that eccentricity um, and that character-driven story with also the science that's really, really intriguing um, that I think more people should know about. Yeah, I'm stoked to see your film. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's a short piece. It's only 13 minutes, and so I, I, I kind of feel like I barely do it justice. But um, what I really wanted it to be was sort of this um, introduction piece that kind of um, gets people to go um, and do their own research after um, and I hope on my website I have a lot of other resources of um, the people that I interviewed. Um, there's actually a group called Radical Mycology. Um, have you heard of it? No. <laughs> um, and it's, they call themselves a volunteer and social, they're an organization and a social movement where they're trying to get people to empower themselves by using mushrooms, um, growing their own mushrooms for medicinal purposes, using them to 
restore ecosystems, um, sort of um, democratizing the science of mushrooms, I guess. Um, and I that that's sort of this up-and-coming stuff with mycology. So anyway, I interview him in the story, and I have resources on my page to share that with people if they want to learn more. Cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so what was... What was your greatest challenge in producing this film? My greatest challenge with producing Fungophilia Rising was definitely making it edible, making it a short piece that can be digested. My first cut was uh, 25 minutes, and I was just really fascinated by all the science. Um, so I really had to pare that down, but also making an inanimate object, something that doesn't have movement. It's not a predator. It's not a lion. It's not a tiger. Um, it's a part of nature that um, kind of gets overlooked a lot. So kind of making that interesting. So making creative choices using slow motion, um, using animation and ways to create the mushroom as a character. Mm. So that was sort of challenge, I guess, and a good creative challenge that I enjoyed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think most people, when they think about wildlife, they think about animals, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, mushrooms could be wildlife too, right? Definitely. And, I mean, when you think about an ecosystem, what I've come, my research showed me that things wouldn't really exist the way they do without the help of, for example, mycorrhizal fungi type of fungi that actually are connected to the roots of plants mm-hmm. and they exchange information basically mushrooms pass nutrients on um, it's a symbiotic relationship so um, the, the tree helps the mushrooms grow the, the mushrooms help the tree grow um, and they found that that is actually it's, it's key to life when it for some forests um, so realizing if you can see that interconnectedness that um, yes it is maybe not a the big megafauna but those megafauna wouldn't exist if these little mushrooms weren't around or fungi I guess yeah absolutely mm-hmm. So where can folks go to check out your film? You can find it on... If you actually just Google Fungophilia Rising, um, it'll take you to my Vimeo page. Um, We also are are on Facebook. If you just search Fungophilia Rising or Facebook.com, Fungi for Life, with a four, the number four. (laughs) Awesome. I like it. Cool. (laughs) My name is Eddie Rocetta. I'm a filmmaker. My most recent film that's screened here at the International Wildlife Film Festival is Silencing the Thunder. It's a 26-minute film that investigates the lethal management of Yellowstone National Park bison. Uh, They carry a disease called brucellosis that the state of Montana fears will spread to domestic livestock if they exit the park in the winter. So they're being hazed and slaughtered to prevent that disease transmission. So the film just investigates that issue from sort of all sides and perspectives and sort of questions ultimately, like, should we be managing our Yellowstone National Park bison? Awesome. So how did you find out about this issue? So I guess, you know, honestly, just um, it started out as a media outreach video for the United States Geological Survey. They were doing a lot of studies on brucellosis, more specifically in elk, actually. And the principal investigator on the project, he was, sadly, he was a little bit depressed that the videos weren't getting a lot of views because they were just about kind of like this very practical sort of hard science of, you know, how much prevalence is in elk and how much is in bison and sort of like these sort of very specific scientific questions and intricacies that really only scientists may be interested about. So he wanted to 
sort of create a project that would appeal to a larger audience. So then at that point, I stepped in, took over, and was like, hey, let's make a longer film that investigates the, the entire socio-political like, realm of this issue, like all the different perspectives via, or not via, but rather ranchers, environmentalists, Native Americans, politicians, and sort of pull everybody together to create this one film that actually sort of does serve as a media outreach campaign where each stakeholder group can learn about the other's perspective and hopefully move forward. That was my intention. Awesome. So this is a, I mean, it's a pretty controversial issue, right? Yeah, it's definitely controversial in Montana. Montana has a huge legacy of being the cattle state of America. You know, that's one of the primary industries, or at least originally, I don't know if nowadays it still is, but it's known culturally it still is. So because of that history, the cattle ranchers, they fear kind of losing their cultural like grounding and perspective on life for these, quote, like, you know, anarchist, like, socialist sort of environmentalist perspectives that are trying to take away their lifestyle. So it's very controversial in that sense. The politicians don't want to quite give in to this new perspective because it's new, mm-hmm. you know, it challenges the the comfort of, you know, everything that state was for the past hundred years. Did, did that controversy uh, uh, sort of uh, make the process difficult? Um, you would think that it would make the filmmaking aspect really difficult, but actually everybody was super open to being a part of the film because everybody is, everybody, both ranchers, environmentalists, politicians, everybody was really passionate about their certain perspective, which... You know, each group, in a sense, has validity in their argument. But, you know, I tried to get to some sort of middle ground situation because, yes, you know, private property issue, you know, it's important. And ranchers have been here for hundreds of years. They do maintain open landscapes and they play vital roles here in the state. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, evict them from their land. We want them to be on their land. But how can we also have bison on that land? And, you know, figuring out that middle ground. I don't know if I completely accomplished how to do that middle ground, but I tried to. Have you screened the film for uh, sort of these groups on both sides of the issue? And and what kind of response did you get? Okay, that's actually really interesting because the film is currently playing on Montana PBS. Mm -hmm. And when I proposed the film to them, they said that they want the film to be middle ground, that Mm -hmm. they want to just screen this one film and have it appeal to both of their audience groups, Mm -hmm. the sort of, you know, environmentalist kind of progressive group and then the more you know rancher-based conservative conservative group and typically they will screen one sort of liberal film and then screen a conservative film to balance the schedule out Mm -hmm. so since i proposed a single film i had to get approval from various people in the state to sort of prove to montana pbs that yes the single film actually can communicate the perspective of this diverse audience and some of the responses um most of them were good, but there was a couple kind of, you know, responses that maybe you would expect where, not to call them out, but a rancher was like, this is a propaganda film. This is, you know, this horrible film that's trying to, like, erase everything that we are as a people and, you know, go for this sort of socialist perspective. I don't know. Like, that's just that's just the, the terminology that's used. In sure. the, in the, that was used in the email. Uh-huh. And... I don't know if 
they actually even watch the film. I feel like that's just their bias. <laughs> they just hear the brucellosis argument and then, or something about brucellosis and bison, and then they just wrote that email because I feel like if you, anybody who watched the film would be able to to see everybody's perspective was right. given fair treatment and right. And obviously, Montana PBS must agree with you because they they aired it, right? Yeah, they aired it, and they they definitely agree. But yeah, and that's the whole controversy of the problem is people are sometimes unwilling to change unwilling to see another person's perspective and that's what's keeping this issue an issue for the past decade yeah and it's probably going to keep it in an issue for the next decade is you know these core people that are unwilling to change yeah yeah i mean but are, are there any sort of examples you know of like the other side like like ranchers who saw the film and were maybe like oh i maybe i understand where these this the other side's coming from yeah so actually Druska, the female rancher in the in the film she she watched the film she appreciated the film she said that she felt that it geared more poor uh pro bison rather than like pro rancher perspective and she was like you know i'm okay with that because i feel like my voice was properly like presented in the film Mm -hmm. i feel like i can speak on behalf of other ranchers and their wants their goals their Mm -hmm. ideals and so she was a little bit disappointed in the film because she you know she would obviously want it to be more in support of her perspective but she could understand that you know there's other perspectives out there other than just hers and i think she was comfortable with that cool well that's good it's always good to have the folks that are in the film (laughs) approve the film yeah not be angry with you (laughs) yeah (laughs) awesome so where can folks go to learn more about this project and and maybe even watch the film yeah the film's available um publicly on the internet on vimeo so anybody can type in Silencing the Thunder into Vimeo or Google more broadly. Uh, somebody actually created a torrent for the film, and so somebody uploaded it to, to YouTube. Um, Even though you have it up there for free anyways. <laughs> yeah, up there for free. So there's multiple multiple places that you can find it. and Or if you're based in Montana, then you can tune into Montana PBS or go to their website to find out when it airs. And I have a website, forestclayproductions.com, and it's available on there. This past week, you sort of you, you had a, a couple pretty awesome things happen happen with your film. I mean, t- tell me what happened just in this last week. Yeah, so just this last week, I won the um, the college Emmy Award for Silencing the Thunder, Best Documentary. And yeah, it's a sort of subcategory of the primetime Emmys for specific specifically for college films. And or films made during college for producers and directors. Mm-hmm. So one best of that category in documentary films. So that's pretty impressive. And then I just won the Individual Achievement Award here at the International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. That was our first series of interviews with filmmakers at the International Wildlife Film Festival. As you heard in these interviews, all but one of these films is currently available to watch for free online, so we will have these videos embedded on the show notes page for this episode so that you can watch them all in one place. So be sure to check that out at wildlandsinc.org eoc21. Our next series of filmmaker interviews features conversations with three filmmakers who produce longer wildlife-themed documentaries. Luke Paget produced an hour-long film called The Hallowed Isles. Jessica Plum produced a feature-length film called The Return of the River. And William Sorensen, Stella Kwasinski, and Nancy Economy produced the two-hour film Russian River, All Rivers. 
These three filmmakers had very different approaches towards producing their films and telling their stories, and they also represent three very different approaches towards distribution. Hopefully, hearing about the wide range of approaches towards production and distribution will be helpful for any aspiring filmmakers and storytellers out there. So let's jump into these interviews. My name is Luke Padgett. I'm an independent filmmaker. Um, I, like a lot of us, I do a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm a DP. I'm an editor. Um, I, I write treatments and grants, and I write stories. So uh, I, I work uh, on this film. We did... Uh, this film is called Hallowed Isles. It's about uh, a small island chain off of the coast of New Zealand with a lot of endemic bird species. And so we set out to make a film about these bird species, um, but really in the context of this place as a special cultural place where people are really making a living off the land out there. There's there 600 people that live out there, and it's been colonized since the early 1800s by whalers. And so what we wanted to do is use the microcosm of an island to show the way the small community has gone from being completely immigrant to completely native, just like all the endemic species at one point had to migrate there as, as species from somewhere else and eventually became unique on, on that island. And so going about doing that was, was pretty much a standard natural history filmmaking trip with uh, a dramatic <laughs> a dramatic twist for us on the production side because it's incredibly politically fraught. It's a small island and it feels like that. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody has a bone to pick with everybody else. And there are three ethnic groups there and there's a lot of historical conflict. And, and so, anyway, in short, it's a film about natural history but people in the context of natural history it is not just about animals it's about people living on the land having to do the same things that animals have to do in order to make everything work so it it, it sounds like this uh human element was was maybe a surprise for you what was that discovery like (laughs) you know know, and 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 what were what what actually happened in the film as far as what your expectations were yeah, we, we went in knowing that the Chathams are a difficult place to work if you don't make the right friends. And uh, what I realized about that is that too often in wildlife filmmaking, we focus on just the wildlife, just the wildlife, just the wildlife, and look at this pristine place. And it's like, there's no pristine place on Earth. There really isn't. Everybody lives everywhere, and we all have a relationship with land just like animals do, and we need to go away from this idea of like trying to make films about perfect ecologies and planning for the future of perfect ecologies returning to earth because it's never going to happen we live in the anthropocene we have to make films about people as animals and animals as as what they are so they're doing what they have to to live in the world that in many ways we've created and we're doing what we have to to square what we are doing as active agents of nature to the world so I, I couldn't agree more and, and I love that you have that perspective in your film um, what what was your greatest challenge in putting the story together um, there there were several one one was was of course you end up you end up talking to people in rooms uh, making friends and getting permission for a lot longer than than I was ready to do of course you go out to and there there were there are two sides to this there was the human the human difficulty of working in this difficult political place but also it's 
It's a sub-Antarctic island nearly. It's in the roaring 40s. It's incredibly wet all the time. It's cold. Um, you know, the infrastructure is minimal. You have to get your own. I mean, just to get out to one of the outlying islands, we had to spend about 1200 bucks in boat gas. <laughs> and so we had to find a way to, like, make that fisherman happy about it and get him paid but also try to do some trades anyway the the one of the hardest things was um working on one of these really remote outlying islands for about a week we had a window of time where we like got somehow got blessed with enough good weather to fly the drone a lot to get all these shots of this of these species that don't exist on the main island chain anymore and just the challenge of powering everything remotely the challenge of making sure we we backed up our footage properly, just the the regular everyday physical task. And not only that, waking up every single morning, it's a crew of two, waking up every single morning and carrying like 50, 60, 70 pounds of gear all up and down this island that's got like 2,000 feet of elevation. And, uh, you know, being younger, adventurous guys, we relished that part of it. That's the part you expect. That's the part you can deal with. It's a real learning experience when you have to do both that and very delicate political maneuvering at the same time in order to get access to these places where you can go kick your own ass in that way. <laughs> so, so those were those were big challenges. Um, and 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 that and that's that's leaving out the probably the biggest challenge, which was not being able to do a recce, coming back with a pile of material and all these new ideas, and creating something out of it. We made this film in six months, so. We were on location for a month. We did pre-production for a month. And I sat in a room for four months freaking out. <laughs> and that's how the film was made. <laughs> nice. I mean, that is a remarkably uh, fast turnaround time uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it sounds like a lot of interesting challenges associated with just the remoteness of that place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead if you have something else to add. Yeah. And I'd have to say, you know, this is the kind of thing that... So my... The, the only reason I ever made this film was because um, my friend James Reardon, who's the director and DP on the film primarily, uh, wore, is a PhD zoologist and works for the New Zealand Department of Conservation. He also used to shoot for the BBC Natural History Unit about a decade ago, and he's, he's a very accomplished cinematographer coming from the world of 16 and 35-millimeter... Um, traveling all over the world, dealing with the most insane conditions, getting some of the most incredible wildlife images that I grew up watching. Um, and it was an, an enormous privilege to work with somebody like that and like on a one-on-one sort of like master apprentice sort of situation, but also to, you know, because he has a full-time job, I had to do my part. There was no slacking on either side. So, um, you know, Without what I learned from James, I wouldn't have made this film. And without what I've learned from this film, I wouldn't be thinking about making any more. <laughs> <laughs> neat, neat. Yeah. Sounds like a, yeah, a remarkable experience. Yeah. Um, where can folks go to check out your film, learn more about it? We, we have a trailer. Um, our, the production company for the film is called Last Planet. That's, our, that's uh, the film company based out of New Zealand. Last Planet Limited. Um, there's a trailer on the internet. We don't know how we're going to show this. We 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 haven't quite arrived at at uh, what the solution is for that yet. Like like all of us in sort of this bracket, uh, we're figuring out the new landscape of distribution. Not sure what to do. We have you know because it was a community film done for a land trust. We've provided ways for them to watch it 
because it's about them. And to reach a, an agreement of making a film about an audience who, who has to find it truthful, that, that was another great pressure on the film, that we, we were making it for the people who, who it's about. So it had to be, it had to make, be true enough to be real, but also um, right enough to make them comfortable with it. So they're watching it happily, but uh, we don't know how yet. <laughs> so sorry. I, wish, I would love to show it to everybody. But, uh, uh, I mean, do, you, do you guys have other film festival screenings coming up? This is the only film festival we entered it in. And, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I think that was just partly because we didn't, we, we made it, we made it uh, sort of under contract and fulfilled that contract and, and almost started doing this part as an afterthought, realizing like, oh yeah, this is what people do, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's been an incredible experience because I've never done, I've, I've been doing this, making films, making a living at it for, for 10 years, but uh, I've never done a film festival. So, <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird. Like, this is totally new ground for me. So I have no idea. That's, that, that's, that's basically the question I came to answer for myself is like, what do I do next? So. Gotcha. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing all the info. And, um, yeah, you'll have, to, you'll have to keep me in the loop uh, as yeah. far as you develop your distribution ideas. And, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that way we can sort of keep folks updated. And once the film is available to view... I'll share that around. My name is Jessica Plum, and I am the producer and co-director of a feature documentary called Return of the River. And Return of the River is a film about the largest dam removal in history, which was just completed on the Elwha River in Washington State. However, in my view, it's also about a question bigger than that. It's about how change happens. Because the campaign to remove these two dams was something that unfolded over many years, decades, actually. And essentially, when people first proposed the idea of removing the two dams in the Elwha River, they were told they were completely crazy. And now that crazy idea is a celebrated reality in Washington State and has drawn attention from around the world. So the film really tracks the century-long story of why the dams were put in in the first place and then focuses on the effort to have them removed and and what it took to make that happen. Of course, it also covers in in great detail the physical removal of the dams and some of the major science questions surrounding that and the restoration effort. That's a basic introduction. Fantastic. So what inspired you to, to get involved in this issue and to start telling your story uh, uh, in this film? Well, first of all, as I've said before, you know, as an environmental filmmaker, it's a really rare opportunity to be able to tell a story that is completely infused with hope. It's a success story. And so many of the environmental films we see are critical, but also present problems to which there are no easy solutions. And this is a rare opportunity to see, actually, a, a project that, after much hard work, much activism, resulted in a remarkable, unprecedented restoration success. And in that way, the Elwha River story drew me in completely. However, there are several other reasons. First of all, it's a film about the area that I call home. I've lived on the Olympic Peninsula for close to 15 years now. I love Olympic National Park and the lands around it. And as dam removal began to unfold on the Elwha, I was completely captivated with the process that was happening there. Also, the seed for this film, you could say, was planted much earlier in my life. Um, I have been involved in other river projects and stories, most notably 
I was in China at the time that the Three Gorges Dam was built, and that's the largest dam still on the planet. And I happened to have the opportunity to, to witness it in the final construction stages, in fact, to visit the site where the dam building uh, project was underway there. That was a memory that really haunted me for a long time. And so as I began to see history happening in reverse on the Elwa River, I was completely fascinated with how that might happen. And I committed myself to, to working on the film full time. Actually, not when I was out there with a the camera, but when I was at the river, at the Elwa River, at the lower dam site with a group of students from my daughter's elementary school. And by luck, I was there with a group of young people on one of the first days they started to remove the lower Elwa Dam. And literally, you know, there's a giant, you know, battering ram knocking chunks out of the dam, water starting to roar out of this reservoir, and the newly freed river was turning into an incredible waterfall. The emotion of that moment was incredible, and it brought back for me this memory of standing at another dam site halfway around the world, watching this enormous project under construction. I really felt that somebody had to tell the story of what had happened on the Alwa, that it was exceptional, and I had the good fortune of uh, meeting my co-director on the film, John Gusman, uh, not long thereafter. And he, like me, was fascinated by the story for the love of the place and the love of the story. And together, we turned that into a film that's here. So I'm wondering how long it took you to complete this film. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but I'm also wondering, I mean, if you knew when you started working on it that this initiative to remove these dams on the Elwad. I mean, did, did you know at this point that the dams were going to be removed when you started shooting? Yes, both at the time that John Gusman started shooting, and I want to give credit to my co-director. He really dropped everything first and went out there with a the camera. Both at the time that he started shooting and that I joined him, we knew that dam removal was imminent. And in, in that regard, our timing was very fortunate. Over the years, a number of people have tracked this story with interest, of course, and documented parts of it. And when we began our full-on production phase, the process of dam removal was already underway. However, what became one of my obsessions, the making of the film, was reconstructing what it had taken to get to that moment. So we had the, both the, the pleasure of knowing the outcome and being able to film the very dramatic process of taking down the two biggest dams that have been taken down on the planet. But we also... Uh, we also had the opportunity to, because we are uh, relatively local, to meet with a lot of the people who'd played a role in that process over a very long time. And that made it possible to look back. You asked how long we were working on the film. Uh, John started filming on the Elwa without a clear uh, plan of what was going to come of all that footage. I think really late 2009, early 2010, and I joined him in 2011. So for me now, it's been three and a half years. For John, it's been longer, over four. And it was a complete labor of love, a film of passion, and took all of our time for that, for that process. I spent, along with John, countless weeks not only out in the river, but also then 
know, editing, trying to construct a story out of this really complicated uh, series of threads and different elements. It's been quite a journey. Well, it's a really amazing film. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you, you definitely wove together all those elements in, in a really powerful way. Um, what would you say your greatest challenge was in putting this story together? That's a good question. What was the greatest challenge? From a very practical level, to be honest, as an independent documentary filmmaker, the greatest challenge was fundraising. <laughs> Always. <laughs> right. we, and I'm sure you've heard this from others. Uh, we had a real sense of urgency about the story because it was happening around us. It was The dams were coming down. We needed to get out there and document it. Uh, and capture what was happening, regardless of whether we had all of the other pieces in place. And so I found myself fundraising while we were in production and post-production the entire time. I think the other thing that was challenging is that so many uh, documentaries are hung on one character, for instance. And I saw early on that that was not a realistic approach to this documentary, that we really needed to attempt to tell the story from a wide range of voices. And not only finding those, but then finding a way to tie them all together was really the challenge. It was a structurally challenging film in that regard, I felt. And that took a lot of time to sort out. And it it seems to me like the river became your main character. And and you use narration in this really creative way to sort of give the river's perspective on what's happening, which I thought was uh, a, a really interesting way to, to uh, weave all these elements of the story together. What, what, I mean, what, I, I guess I wonder what, your, what that decision-making process was like. Well, uh, I had an opportunity to speak about that a little bit last night at the International Wildlife Film Festival. Great audience, by the way. Choosing to make The River the Narrator was one of the more difficult uh, decisions of the film for me, even though uh, and, you know, our crew and uh, team really got behind it. And as I explained a bit last night, for me, first of all, narration is not a, an approach or a tool I normally uh, gravitate toward in filmmaking. It's kind of a last-ditch resort for me often. And so... In the end, I found that The River as Narrator, which I wrote, um, came about for two reasons. First, I felt that the story was complex and it needed, uh, in the end, a narrator to hold this hundred-year story together. We needed a voice that transcended all of the individual viewpoints from their different perspectives in the film. I also felt, and I really came to strongly feel that that there was a missing voice and that there is a missing voice often in human conversations about the land and the natural world and that we needed a voice for nature and in this case specifically for the river. Now, knowing that that was... uh, knowing that that made sense for the film and then actually realizing it are two different things, it was a really difficult thing to write and it felt very risky, and I was sure that there would be people who f- who didn't warm to that idea. I think it's a real leap of faith to personify a non-human character. And it was, it was tricky. I talked myself out of it multiple times and ultimately stuck with it and had great enthusiasm from my co-director to go forward, and I worked with a lot of advisors on how to make the most of that choice. 
Yeah, I, that's something that I have struggled with as well in, in my filmmaking. Um, and I, I think I share that perspective where I'm very reluctant to use narration in, in my storytelling. But I think that you made the right decision. I think it, I think it, I think it was effective. Um, and I, I think it did really tie all these different elements of your story together. And then it, it, it was ultimately very powerful, I think. And, and you had a great audience last night. I think I think everybody in the audience felt that as well. I got that sense for sure. Um, where can folks go to see your film? Well, thanks for asking that. Uh, right now we are finishing up a pretty busy festival tour. This is uh, our 20-something festival, I think 22nd, but I could be wrong. And so we have just started to work with an educational distributor, Collective Eye, who's making the film available to universities, libraries, and schools. And so uh, that link is available on our website. We are holding off on rolling out uh, you know, direct DVD sales through the website until we've had some time with the educational market. However, those of you who catch me in person at festivals or talk to us, friends of the film, we do have DVDs available uh, for those who want to go that route. By the summer, I anticipate we're likely to be offering direct DVD sales as well as streaming online. And... We continue to have a really vibrant community screening program, which is an opportunity to bring the film to your community, whether it's through a nonprofit organization or a, just a group of people who are passionate about rivers or for whatever reason. Um, and that's also easy to do via our website, which is elwafilm.com. And for people who aren't familiar with that, that's E-L-W-H-A, film.com. Elwa's the name of the river. It's the Elwa River in Washington State. And so we have an increasing number of those types of screenings going on all around the country right now. We welcome inquiries about them. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for chatting. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay, uh, Bill Sorensen, William Sorensen, and uh, a writer, director, producer, editor, window washer. Um, um, and the project uh, is a two-hour-long film, which is uh, we consider it a kind of a toolkit for the local community to understand um, what the, the Russian River, All Rivers, which is the name of the film, uh, is about. And uh, it, it is about um, a continuing series of boom-bust cycles uh, which have done progressive damage to uh, a region, to habitat, uh, especially to fish. Uh, we have uh, three species of, of fish, uh, two uh, salmon species and uh, a st a steelhead, uh, which have been devastated by the effect over time. Uh, and uh, so... Really, the, the, the need was there to make the film, so that's what got us going. And uh, so we have a two-hour-long epic film about the subject, and it's been fairly successful in the, in, the, in the local area. And our approach to distributing it was unusual and different, and it's worked. Fantastic. Uh, I'm Stella Kwasinski, and I, I, I helped out with, uh, I guess, uh, all the, all, the, all the rest picking up the, as, as Nancy and I like to say, in the rear with the gear. <laughs> Nancy's here. and um, Awesome. So, so well, well, what, what, was your, what was your specific role on, on the film? Um, I, I, I helped with uh, the production and co-producer, uh, but uh, helped in the field, helped um, pre-production and uh, a lot of post-production um, Gotcha. A little bit assistant, of everything, right? Assistant yeah. editing. And, yeah. I mean, filmmakers are really sort of, you, you're yeah. sort of forced to become a jack of all trades, exactly. right? Exactly. Sound recorders <laughs> as well. Yeah. 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 
I'm Nancy Economy, and I served as associate producer, which means a little bit of everything, as you well know, and also um, field production, which was really fun, and a lot of media and getting help, helping getting it into theaters and getting those people to come to see it once it, the date was booked. So a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm wondering what the sort of... Uh, uh, what what the inspiration was? What was the seed? You know, what was there? A, a, did something happen that sort of made you guys realize like we really have to tell this story? I, it literally was a, f- a physical experience. Uh, we were in in the river uh, doing a commercial project, a tripod set up, a camera right above the water, a beautiful shot, beautiful bridge. The water was looking great. The canoes going by, but. Um, the, clear, the closer we got our nose to the water, the more we realized there was a problem. The, the, uh, uh, there was an unusual, inappropriate odor to the water, and the water was far too warm. And uh, so we knew something was wrong. At that time, um, the city of Santa Rosa in California, w- w- they were doing massive releases of treated sewer water, um, which obviously is going to have devastating effects on, on fish. Um, there was quite a Uprising that that, that uh, came about because of this, but uh, that's where it began. And I think um, it was literally that physical effect that led us on to to look further into the subject. And then the world opened up. It's just one. It has been one thing after another with that river, and uh, uh, devastating effects. It's a classic example of what humans are not supposed to do uh, to a watershed. And that's where it began. Yeah. You guys have anything to add, like any sort of direct experience you had with the river? That we were both in the river at the same time, Uh and uh, Bill noticed the smell, but we noticed how warm it was. It was bathtub water, and I hadn't really been in that river that much. I thought, aren't rivers supposed to be kind of (laughs) chilly? Shouldn't I be freezing by now? And then we, as Bill said, we got to talking to people, and the world opened up to us after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I would say, you know, as we did more research, as we started posing questions, um, we we quickly learned that um, the Russian River, for all of the problems that it um, encountered, um, that was really true of so many rivers, especially in the Pacific Northwest. So, hence the name, the Russian River, all rivers. I mean, it just. Uh, I mean, it, it became pretty clear pretty quickly um, that diversions and pollutants, contaminants, overdraw, all those things um, affected these rivers everywhere. Yeah. Very complex. And one thing I'd like to add, I think that, uh, as well said, it's a toolkit, and it really is. It's uh, many community leaders who've been working on this issue for decades and the Russian Riverkeeper, and all that, but it's all in one place. So, so many people have said, I didn't know that. I've lived here for 40 years. I didn't know that. We've had people, what can I do? What can I do? You've inspired me. What can I do? And for that reason, we have a Get Involved page. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. They just have to click on a link and go help, go give, go do something. And so it is inspirational to see, as Bill would say, the crosstalk of uh, different counties and different regions come together, but it's because it, the information is all in one place. Nice, nice. How, how long did it take you guys to produce this film? Yeah, the first interview was in 2009, and uh, but uh, there was a, a sporadic interviews over the years. Um, most of the work uh, occurred over the last two years, the final edit. Um, uh, there were 50 interviews. We, we, we did 50 interviews, 27, I believe, are in the film. Um, so it really is something that uh, we managed to... Uh, we were working professionally 
and we managed to work the project in um, as, as we could. But toward the end, we just kind of fell into the project, and that became our life. Uh, not a very good financial decision, but at least one that was good for the soul. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So the last two years were, were most of the most of the effort. So, what what are some of the greatest challenges that you faced uh, in putting this, piecing this story together, and, and and producing this film? I would say the abundance of material. I think the real challenge and a credit to Bill was really. Uh, Pairing down the information to its real, to all the kernels. Um, we just had a lot of material. And, you know, when you start talking about water, I mean, it's such an incredibly complex subject. Um, even our, you know, Russian River is only 110 miles long and it's, you know, not a huge watershed, but it, you start talking water quality, water quantity, and it's, I mean, it's, it can just go on forever. So I would. For me, certainly, that was one of the big our big challenges. I think the challenges are internal. I mean, I, I think um, about two thirds through the project, I, I think uh, when we really didn't sense that the interest was there, um, you start to feel fairly alienated and alone in your project. Um, but we fought through to the end. Um, but once we started to show the film, we realized we were we had done something wise. Uh, because people were engaged and surprisingly, I have to say we were overwhelmed with the response it has been just extraordinary with background music um, Yeah, so it, I think that, that has really helped us immensely Nice. So you mentioned that you had a uh, that you have a a different approach towards distribution or non traditional approach mm-hmm. towards distribution. Um, talk a little bit more about that. What what has been your approach and, and uh, what kind of successes have you seen? I think I think, uh, and, and maybe this is clearly a case where the uh, horse, uh, the cart has become uh, is is, is uh, before the horse because um, the project we're currently doing, which is about sustainability, uh, has evolved out of this first film. Our target, our essential target, was uh, those counties in the region where the rivers exist. But that does that includes a large part of California, two major watersheds including the Eel River, which goes all the way to Eureka, uh, and then uh, the, the water effect goes all the way to Marin. That was our focus, to, to involve those communities. So that was fine. Once we achieved that, we, have, we felt we had achieved our goals. Uh, but now we've embarked on this new project, which uh, has taught us that we can indeed have a central location, a website, which can be linked to several different channels. Um, and and get information out. Uh, this the film will go there, but also this new program will go there. Um, really, uh, this is self distribution. I mean, people laugh at that, uh, but I think that is going to be has to be the future, uh, because you've got to defend your material. And I think uh, that that is an interesting new development. And uh, there are ways to make a living doing that. <laughs> In this particular case, um, we wanted, obviously, as Bill said, the community to see it. So we decided, well, let's just dial them up. So we started from the north and to the south and tried to find um, a reasonable theater, something not too big, not too small, maybe independently owned, that they will work with you as much as possible, and a little elbow grease from all three of us. And um, we got placed, but then there's the publicity part of that. And so you find any which way you can possibly... Um, get people talking about your film and we dutifully collected email names and kept that going so it's having all the pots boiling all at once spinning the plates 
keeping them up there and then sort of it fed back on itself because people always oh, saw that there can you bring it to my group and sometimes it's a small Native American group that wants to show it for 20 people but they desperately care about their watershed please you know here's the blu-ray play it and keep it for your library and it's, it's other times it's 300 people uh, arena in or a venue in Napa where we have to you know call on the newspapers and the flyers and putting flyers up in coffee shops and any hole that can be plugged that's how we did it and we also, um, I know that uh, a lot of filmmakers use uh, Indiegogo, uh, Kickstarter-type things uh, to get their films going for financing, and and that helps build um, an initial sort of core group to rally around the film, certainly as it progresses. And although we didn't do it at the beginning, we did um, that at more towards the end of the film. It really helped create, um, for buzz I, I guess you would say about the film you know it helps the film is coming soon and help us get there and then it sort of helped sustain an interest for when we were finished with the film that oh it's out and we were able I think to to get people to come out and see it because of that yeah it's great and uh, yeah it's 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 neat for me to see other folks sort of taking this self-distribution route and, and having success with it I, I sort of had a similar approach um, with with my last film Luberman right, right. um, with a film with a, a very regional focus you know where it, it seems manageable right when you have a, a when you sort of hone in on that target audience um, it you know uh, uh, having that goal be tangible I think helps take take that on and, and really it flies in the face of, of um a, a prescribed vision of the world. Uh, I, I have to say, uh, I don't find material that I'm interested in very often. Um, uh, and usually it's a little wonkier than the usual piece. Um, Hollywood isn't always terribly interesting to me, uh, uh, but here's a chance to really see a, a broader discussion uh, open up. And, and again, to see this local community impact is uh, so essential. We just don't do it. We've lost it in the journalistic sense. Um, the the internet is a vast and complex, uh, interconnected hive of activity. But the trouble is, we sort of lose track of where we are. It's really hard to focus. What is a community? And you discover a community in a theater. That's the other side of this too. We did. We have shown successfully over and over again in theaters. Um, but it is in, in the process of doing that. It, I wrote a piece uh, regarding uh, what it was like to have that community experience, and it was it was pretty good text. The, the, the theater used it. They said this is this is what we have to be about. It is the future of these houses where we get to meet our neighbors and and be engaged politically with mm-hmm. where we are. It's very um, exciting to see people not just rush up to us and ask us for opinions, but to talk amongst themselves. And then yes. one will tell the other, Watershed, why don't you guys use the film in your area? And then they get together, and then they go off into another group. And then the Russian Riverkeeper is talking to another Riverkeeper group. And it's all because they got together in one place and saw the film and became inspired to continue. Many of them are already doing the work. They just are continuing to do it yes. with each other. Great. Yeah, it's, it's really wonderful to, to, to hear about these successes that you guys have had in, in getting this important message out. So uh, where can folks go to, to learn more about your project? And you know, maybe if uh, folks want to set up a screening in their local area, where can they go to find more information about the film? Yeah, they're, they're, go ahead. Oh, well, it's the, the, the web, www.russianriverallrivers.com. 
And um, there's a place to sign up on the email list, more background information about the film. There's a a Get Involved page um, that we're continually adding to. Um, People are interested in in, uh, just getting involved, getting, getting, jumping hands in with their getting some work done. And to us, I'm sorry, the the Sustain Extreme project, which we're going to be starting, to us is even more important because it's the next thing. Uh, so uh, I'm sure that you'll, the, the the film will be accessible there, but uh, this this new uh, series we're doing I think is really going to be even more important. Fantastic! And and folks can find out more information about that on your website as they, well. They will soon. Yes, it's coming. So. All right, great. Thank well, you. thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot for chatting with me. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. All right, those were my interviews with the filmmakers representing the films Hallowed Isles, Return of the River and Russian River, All Rivers. Although these films are not yet available to screen online, we will have trailers for all three films embedded on the show notes page for this episode, as well as links to the film's websites where you can get more info about upcoming screenings. These show notes, again, can be found at wildlandsinc.org EOC21. Our Eyes on Conservation wrap-up of this year's International Wildlife Film Festival is getting close to its end i know we uh, are at over an hour uh, already and this is a much longer episode than is normal um but we couldn't do an episode about the international wildlife film festival without talking about broadcast television some of the best wildlife films are produced for television series and one of the best and most well-known wildlife themed television series in the u.s is nature There were several episodes of the series Nature screening at this year's festival, and the series editor for Nature, Janet Hess, was on hand to answer questions. Let's hear what Janet has to say about her role with the series Nature. Hi, I'm Janet Hess. I'm the series editor of Nature, uh, the natural history series on PBS, and uh, been coming to the festival for many, many years. I'm a big fan, big supporter, and um, uh, it's just a special collection of people that come every year to celebrate all this incredible work and and find out where we're going next. Awesome. So what does it mean to be a series editor? Well, it's an editorial position. I don't edit films, you know, cutting uh, scenes together, but I uh, look at the stories we're developing, the projects uh, that are in production now that may need some um, help with story structure, and um, so I look a lot in, in the room with editors, you know, sitting, structuring cuts, uh, reviewing everything we do, and the narratives that we produce. You know, what are the films saying, uh, the writing, the quality of the writing, the quality of the storytelling. I mean, maybe you could talk just a little bit about one of the one of the films that, well, that we, you have screening here at the festival? We've um, had great success with a, a film called, a sloth called Velcro, and it's a charming personal story of a young woman who was a journalist in Central America who got caught up in um, the, the saving wildlife during uh, the construction of and repairs and work going on around the Panama Canal and displacement uh, of animals um, in a lot of the work, the uh, construction work down there. For, there's a new canal going into it. And anyway, she ended up adopting... Uh, 
a baby sloth, which turns out to be a very uh, difficult, demanding uh, creature to raise, and was very successful. And she she goes back to Central America um, to look at, at what's happening with orphans now, and it's um, remembering Velcro, uh, looking at her home video, which is really charming and a really deep personal insight in and connection into an animal that we know so little about, and it's uh, been a really wonderful project. Yeah, it's, it's a, re- a really wonderful film. Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it, and you're right, it gives us really really nice personal side but you also learn a lot about sloths which is an animal that i knew very little about it's it's full of new science which is exciting and um some very unexpected revelations about their biology and um yeah i think it's something that it has something for everybody you know it's just fun and it's very engaging and and it's rich with with new information about the natural world yeah so how, how did you first get involved uh with the series nature well i came from an environmental studies background i not from a film background and i started on the series as a researcher and working on um you know the content so i i started out fortunately exactly where i wanted to end up and i've just been able to um Developed those skills along the way and working on so many films over the years that uh, now I'm in a position to help young filmmakers coming up with their projects and, and helping structure those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, 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 this is the second year I've been to this festival, and uh, um, yeah, the, the panel that you put on last year was, um, was really amazing and, and, and super helpful, and yeah, it's great to to have your perspective here at this festival. Um, well, it's such a pleasure to come. It's such a great group of people that come. And um, I'll be back next year. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so maybe, I mean, probably most people already know this, um, but uh, you can just tell us where folks can go to learn more about uh, the series um, and watch some of the films. Well, we have a, a terrific website on pbs.org nature. And we um, stream all the episodes that have just aired. So if you didn't catch them on air, you can watch them all online. And some are up for a long time. Those are the ones we have extended rights to. And others are up for a few weeks after um, each airing. So, But they can all be seen there. And there's um, more information about every episode, um, some behind-the-scenes videos, and uh, all kinds of extra natural history Information and update articles on shows that we've already done, and um, it's it's just a wonderful site. And we have a great Facebook page, and there's um, a lot to get involved with there, and great conversations among viewers. And we uh, post clips of upcoming uh, shows on there to kind of get people excited about what's coming up next. And it's such a, a positive way for us to tell how much interest there is in a, in a show, and when there's a lot of chat. On Facebook about an upcoming episode, we know it's going to have a very strong audience. Yeah, that's a great way to get feedback. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for chatting with me, and thanks for being here and sharing your My pleasure. I love the festival. Yeah. All right. A great perspective there from Janet on one of the very best wildlife television series out there. We're going to wrap this episode up with just a few snippets from the International Wildlife Film Festival Awards Ceremony. We'll be hearing from the executive director of the International Wildlife Film Festival, Mike Steinberg, who was announcing the awards. Welcome to the, uh, the award ceremony for the 38th International Wildlife Film Festival 
Um, I want to say that um, in, in all earnestness, having seen the films this year, being totally blown away with, with the artistry and the creativity. So I think just, for, just in a, to acknowledge all of those filmmakers, many of them are in this room, uh, who, uh, who presented their films this year, I just take a second. Thank you. Just a great lineup. I, I really, I had fun watching these movies. Um, I'm going to present the first award. This is part of special jury awards. There weren't categories you could enter to say, hey, my film's an advocacy film, for example. But um, the jury, the, the judges for the festival, uh, chose to award a number of films in this kind of special jury awards category, this being the Advocacy Award. And this year, the Advocacy Award goes to... Sweet Nicole, more than salmon on the line. If we don't take care of our parents, if we don't take care of our salmon, there'll be none left for any of us. So I wanted to play this first clip from the award ceremony because the Advocacy Award is particularly relevant to what we're trying to do with Eyes on Conservation. We'll have the trailer for this winning film, Chewitna, More Than Salmon on the Line, up on the show notes page. These filmmakers weren't able to make it to the festival, but I think it's an important film to include in this episode. We're going to jump back into the awards ceremony and hear from BBC Wildlife producer Mike Gunton as he accepts the award for Best Broadcast Series for the show that he produced called Life Story. This is one of the most prestigious awards given out at the festival, and I think it is safe to say that all of the filmmakers in attendance were in awe of what the BBC is doing with wildlife programming in the UK. This is nothing new, of course. The BBC has dominated the space for decades. They have long set the bar for excellence in natural history filmmaking, and they are particularly well known for the development of new and innovative shooting techniques. It was wonderful to have Mike at this year's festival. He led a really amazing workshop session focusing on how new shooting strategies can impact storytelling. Let's hear what he had to say while accepting this award. Okay, thank you so much. Um, the, the next uh, presenter, uh, Colin Rogerio, who is a judge here at the festival this year. Colin, can you come on up? Thank you. Uh, the next award is for Best Broadcast Series. And that one goes to... It's always an absolute pleasure to win anything here at uh, Missoula. And um, to win the Best Series Award, I think, is wonderful. So thank you very much indeed. And the team back home, there's probably a thousand people actually involved in this series, it's, as well as the, the, the producers and the, all, the, uh, all the other craft people. There's a scientific community around the world of the people who really allow us to make this because it's their work that allows us to be able to tell these stories. So thank you to them out there and thank you all, to all of you for giving us this award. Fantastic. Of course, we'll have more information about this amazing wildlife series called Life Story up on the show notes page. Now, to close things out, we're going to hear from the producer of the film Poached, which won Best of Fest at this year's festival. I was lucky enough to spend an evening discussing all things filmmaking with the producer of this excellent film, Steve Brown. Listen in and hear what he had to say when accepting the International Wildlife Film Festival Best of Fest Award. We have, uh, we have uh, a final award to award this evening. It's the Best of Fest Award. 
And it's the moment you've all been waiting for, I suppose. Thank you, Mike. Thank you the, for the to the Roxy and the festival. It's really a great honor to be here. So, on behalf of uh, director Tim Wheeler and uh, co-producer Aaron Goldberg and uh, composer Mark Orton, who I, Mark, are you here? I know you were here earlier uh, in the week for one of the panels, and of course, editor Eric Meyerson. A bunch of uh, four crazy uh, Californians and one Oregonian who made a very British film. Um, and we did that because, I don't know if, how much this resonates with all the other filmmakers in the audience, but we love great adventures in our out, that take us out into our natural world. We love great stories that help us really see what it means to be a human being on this pl- great planet. And most of all, just great collaborations, working creatively with a with, uh, talented team of people, each who are doing their part of it. Um, and this has been a project that we started just over a year ago, uh, premiered at South by Southwest, and it's hopefully going to be in theaters um, pretty soon. So thank you very much. All right. That was Steve Brown, the producer of the film Poached, which won Best of Fest Award at this year's International Wildlife Film Festival. Poached is an amazing film that that takes a look at the issue of illegal egg collecting in the UK. So we'll definitely have some information on that up on the show notes page as well. So that just about wraps up this special episode uh, all about the International Wildlife Film Festival. I want to take a moment to thank the festival director, Mike Steinberg, along with all of the volunteers and attending filmmakers that made this festival so amazing. There are a lot of film festivals out there and an increasing number of festivals that deal specifically with wildlife and conservation issues, but the International Wildlife Film Festival really stands out for for a number of reasons. Not only was it the very first festival of its kind, but it has a wonderful community feel to it. It's almost like a yearly reunion where the best wildlife filmmakers from all over the world come together to celebrate recent achievements and develop new ideas for the future. As I've mentioned several times, the show notes page for this episode has been designed to serve as a hub for folks interested in watching the short wildlife films that screen at the festival, as well as finding out more information about some of the longer films. If you weren't at the festival and you wish you were, this resource was designed for you. And of course, those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC21. Now, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you've enjoyed this special episode about the International Wildlife Film Festival, you should subscribe to the show. I would also be hugely appreciative if you would take the time to write us a quick review over on iTunes. This really helps us out a lot as we strive to reach more people with the important conservation messages that we discuss here on the podcast. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.